This is Jared Fishman, and you're listening to the 20-Sided Gamified Podcast. The past 20 years, I've blended games and education together in the classroom. I'm a history teacher, a game-based learning specialist, and I serve on the board of HMGS NextGen Inc. and the North American Simulations and Games Association. I'm looking to broaden my own knowledge of game-based learning by talking to the people that do it best. Pull up a chair, get your dice ready, and enjoy the ride. All right, everybody, good morning. Uh, This is Jared here from the 20-Sided Gamified Podcast. Um, This is a cool one, as always. I mean, they're always all cool and interesting, but this is a particularly... uh, It's going to be a particularly fun episode. So, um, to just do a quick intro. Um, You know, you may have heard me wax philosophical about this before on this podcast about um, ancient and medieval war games. You know, it's funny. um, Anybody who's a historian, anybody who studies uh, the era, with no disrespect to people like Caesar or Alexander or Pyrrhus or Hannibal or any of those characters, um, it's just always been so interesting to me that most of the war games out there that talk about ancient and medieval war gaming or the ancient medieval world, um, they are the most precise games ever thought of. I mean, if you've ever played DBA or WRG or any of those games like that, um, where, you know, players are, you know, you've got to bring your protractor, <laughs> you know, you know, to the game and it's all tournament based yet warfare itself. I, I don't think it was exactly that way. Like, so if you've ever read, you know, um, any of the accounts of those battles. So to me, um, my point is, is that it's almost like in the same sense that Napoleonic wargaming, it's always like you're trying to find the Holy grail, you know, the rule set that will work for everybody, which is probably not possible. Um, we do have an ancient medieval war game rule set that has recently come out that I do think could be one of those games that kind of gets away from that sort of bring your protractor to the game and game of millimeters, uh, getting away from that and really um, showing what a ancient battle actually looked like. And I have um, um, Mark Backhouse, sorry for that, uh, you know, uh, tick there but yeah we have mark backhouse here he is the author of a rule set that i just recently read and picked up called strength and honor um from ricewitz press a little bit associated with the two fat lardies he could kind of talk a little bit about that and i do think that this is one of those games there's so many cool mechanics in it um that it really could be one of those games that breaks that mold and really kind of portrays ancient and medieval battles the way they kind of actually looked so with that long-winded um, intro out of the way. Uh, I guess for me, it's good morning, Mark. How are you? Hey, well, it's good afternoon here in the UK, but thank Indeed. you, Jared. Really yeah, nice no, no, that was a little long window, but true though. Like that is actually how I, how I kind of feel. Um, it's a really, really cool game, Mark. Oh, great. I'm really pleased you're enjoying it and uh, finding it interesting, getting you thinking, hopefully. Oh, definitely. Yeah. I mean, we could talk a little bit about some of the mechanics that kind of popped out to me that just seem great. But I don't know, maybe maybe for our viewers out there, you know, if somebody has never heard of the rules or, you know, hasn't come across your name yet. Um, I don't know. Do you want to talk a little bit maybe about your origin story, like how you got into gaming and stuff, sure. where you're from? Well, um, yeah, I mean, I started gaming at a very, very young age indeed. Um, uh, I suppose I was at a jumble sale age, about four, and uh, there was a big ice cream tub full of Airfix models. And... Uh, it was a sort of a, a boot sale and I was rooting my way through it. And each of the figures inside, it cost half a pence each. And I'd spent so long picking out the figures that I wanted that my mum said, look, come on, how much for the whole tub of them? And I, for the price of one pound, I was able to take home a massive, great big ice cream box of Airfix soldiers and all kinds of different periods. And straight away, I, I got into gaming with them. I placed them out on tables of uh, recreating battles I'd seen. I think I must have watched Waterloo, the uh, the 1970s film yes. on TV the week before. Yeah. So I remember distinctly <laughs> putting cuirasses attacking British squares there. I knew who the different sides were, which I thought of four or five. Was, in hindsight, looking back at that, it's quite impressive going, really. Yeah. Uh, and then after that, then um, I enjoyed lots of fun with those Airfix figures, but probably not playing with any proper rules. Later on, I suppose I got into things like um, fighting fantasy game books. Um, we had dice mechanisms involved in that and sort of early role-playing games. And then uh, my first proper war gaming was probably through this games workshop, early games workshops, a route there, some around Warhammer 2nd, 3rd edition fantasy battle. Oh, yeah. Rogue Trader and that kind of era there. 
And then by about the early 90s, I was getting a bit bored with uh, the, the Games Workshop model there. And I was increasingly interested in historical gaming. I was reading a lot of the magazines. And um, then in the, the, the 90s, it was very hard to get hold of figures in the UK um, unless you could get out to shows or you had a checkbook and a phone, which at the time I had neither of those things there. So, <laughs> uh, you know, we had to improvise a lot of games. I suppose that's where a lot of my creativity comes from, from a, a time period in which we didn't have all the proper figures and that kind of thing. And we had to make up games with bits of card and um, whatever else we had at hand there. Um, and uh, by the, of the late 1990s, I went to university. And um, when I came back from that, I joined the gaming club. And I've been going to that for the last 23, 24 years. And I play all kinds of different historical games, not just Roman games there. Um, about 12 years ago, I started writing for War Games Ultra Strategy magazine. Uh, and I'm, I'm a regular contributor to that. So I've written well over 130 articles for that and uh, a whole range of different eras and rule sets and that kind of thing. But more recently, I've been really interested in trying to think out the box a little bit, really, in terms of what ancient battles are like. And that's led me on to writing Strength and Honor. Yeah. By the way, going all the way back to the one of the first things that you said, um, Waterloo, right? What a great movie. <laughs> and it's like, it's <laughs> such, it's so funny. It's such a gateway yeah. um, for, for, you know, you know, war gamers in particular, you know, it's just such a, a fine movie. I can remember watching that movie like once a week for years, sure. you know? So sure. did you feel very nationalistic watching it? No, not this slightest. <laughs> no, not so much. I'm, I'm quite, quite happy supporting the French and the British, whoever else there really, you know? Yeah, not... no, gotcha. Gotcha. Now, uh, I mean, I, I hope it's safe for me to assume. I mean, did you study history? Like when you went to yeah, university? Sure. Um, yeah. So I've always been keen on history from a young age. I've been sort of, um, taking away lots of holidays, seeing uh, historical sites, Mm-hmm. Uh, I used to go with my grandparents. My brother was obsessed with steam trains. Okay. And um, we always used to have to go to places where there were steam trains and where there were castles. And in the morning, we'd go and visit a steam train. In the afternoon, we'd visit a castle. Um, my brother now runs a steam railway on the Isle of Wight. And oh, I'm obsessed really? with castles and history and that kind of thing there. So, uh, yeah, I went off and I studied history at university. And then I trained to become a history teacher. And yeah, for the last 22, 23 years now, I've been teaching history in a secondary and sixth form. So 11 to 18 year old students in Britain. Yeah. All right. Now, when you say, so you mean just because again, like sometimes like the numbers are a little different. So when you say 11, and you meaning like 11 and 12 year olds? Yeah. Or? So 11 and 12 year olds, so to 18 year olds. So okay, I teach got them it. right the way up to just before they go to university. Got it. Um, and uh, so it's quite a range of different sort of abilities and sort yeah. of. Uh, uh, a detail and sort of specialism we go into there. Yeah, you know what's funny? I, I, I'm not surprised you're a teacher because, like, when I was reading through the book, I, we're going to talk about this later. But like, I, I'm going to use your game in my classroom, right? And mm-hmm. when I was reading through it, I was like, this doesn't seem like a person who's just a gamer who's writing these rules. Like, just because of the way that everything was articulated. Um, and I'll also compliment you because I because there wasn't necessarily like the quick reference sheet inside the main book i know i got that like um off the website but you know i don't think you actually needed one it was just so articulate and so clear that you know what i mean that i don't even if there wasn't one i don't think i would have needed it you know it's just so nicely written and so like laid out and you know what i mean that's good um yeah I, I, I wrote it out originally, and Richard Clark actually helped me to sort of rewrite it back to so it sort of fitted that um, sort of uh, quality of writing, I suppose, and so it probably helped me in places, isn't it? Um, so I must doff my cap in his direction. Obviously, an experienced writer right. who's produced all kinds of different things there. But um, yeah, certainly in terms of the game mechanism, the idea with the game mechanism is that lots of it are, parts of it are fairly familiar to you. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of it's quite intuitive. I normally run it at shows in which I find the first movement sort of part to it and the sequence to it can normally be picked up in the first turn or two by people. And yeah. people already know what the, the dice rolls mean within a turn or two of moving things without having to look things up in a great deal of detail there. Yeah. Um, and, and hopefully what that does is it means that people stop worrying about the minute of things Right. And you start focusing on what's the big macro picture, the macro tactical picture inside the battle taking place. No, um, right, right, absolutely. Uh, which is, of course, what a general would be doing 
rather than focusing about, you know, what is the third cohort of the Fifth Legion doing at this point in time? Well, nobody cares if you're the general. (laughs) What they worry about is the Legion going forward. Is it being pushed back? Is it suffering horrible casualties? What's the big picture? What's the rest of the battle line doing, you know? Right. And again, like, I don't mean, because I know this happens, like, if you've ever listened to any of the episodes, it's, I don't want to pick on games like WRG. I don't want to pick on DBA per se or DBM, because I've played all those games and have enjoyed them, but... There is something about those games, and it is so fascinating that of all the gaming time periods, it, it really happens primarily in ancient and medieval war games where it becomes litigation, you know, like mm-hmm. where you're sitting down. And I'm serious, like, you know, I can remember playing, you know, tournaments back in the day where people show up with all of their different mechanisms to figure out how troops just simply move forward. You know, sure. is, you know, is there a zone of control here? Well, what does page, you know, four say? And what does rule 5.79 say? Which is just, again, like, I can almost understand that. Like, if you're talking about, I don't know, warfare in the modern world, like, where everything is combined arms and there's, like, a level of intricacy there. But we're talking about the ancient and medieval world. And, again, with no offense meant to any of those commanders, but it's like there's only so many maneuvers that those troops could kind of perform, you know? Yeah, absolutely. It's just weird to me. Always has been. Well, one of the points of strength and honor I really tried to emphasize was the idea that a general didn't have absolute control over the entire battle line. Yeah. Um, you know, if you can, I, I always imagine when we do the school fire drill outside and we get two and a half thousand students outside and try to get them to do anything coordinated yeah. together at one point there, you know, so completely log- huge logistical under, you know, undertaking. Now, yeah, course, no, definitely. That, the pressure of an opposing force, which is doing things, the panic of the moment there. Uh, the lack of communications across a much larger battlefield. We can't see one end of the line necessarily <laughs> because the size of it, uh, you know, several hundred thousand people maybe on a battlefield or even, you know, several tens of thousand people on a battlefield. Um, and it must have been quite a chaotic sort of thing to do. So any sort of intricate manoeuvres and things of the game are quite difficult to carry out. Right. You can't carry out some sort of uh, huge redeployments and uh, and that kind of thing. So the battle... It's it's largely Route One warfare, really, which is you know going forward is normally something that can happen without too many mistakes. But it, trying to do anything slightly more complex than that suddenly runs the risk of um, things falling apart and uh, cohesion breaking down, and right. the opposing side getting an opportunity to exploit that possibly. Right. Um, so I'm hoping that, that that captures it quite well, maybe. So let me ask something then, because it seems like we're getting in the trenches now, right? So let's really, really talking about your game here. We can always go back to some of the other stuff. But okay, so like as a rules writer, everything that you just said, right? In my opinion, like everything that you're talking about here, I mean, some rule sets do it okay, right? So I guess my question would be, did you sort of have a vision of what particularly ancient warfare sort of looked like? And did you say to yourself there needs to be a rule set that covers this. Do you know what I mean? In fairness, there's lots of other really good ancient rule sets out there right. that are, are really fantastic. I suppose one thing I wanted to do was I wanted to try and get across um, a, a closer vision to an ancient battlefield to the one that I'd read about inside books and accounts. Right. Um, I wanted to get something across about the scale of ancient battles and about how these big battles were actually fought there. Um and I wanted to try and uh, capture some of the, the key elements of those battles there and what I thought was interesting about those. Right. And, of course, the emphasis, I think, in sort of older WIG rules and that kind of thing seems to have been very much a focus on the actual weapons and armament that was being carried by the individual soldiers. You right. know, how, I don't know, your Pelum gave you a plus one penetration right. bonus or whatever that might be, or... Um, you know, the, the quality of the armor and that kind of thing. I wanted to sort of uh, move away from that a little bit more and think more about actually the formations involved inside the battles. Yeah. And a little bit more about the sort of the morale and discipline and cohesion of, of, of forces rather than actually how they were as individual fighters or um, their individual equipment. Right. Which I think right, a lot right. of the other rules tend to focus on a little bit more. I think there's a little bit more to warfare really than just simply. Um, you know, well, what type of shield you've got or what type of helmets or, or right. spears. Ultimately, right. in the ancient world, most of the forces had similar-ish sort of weaponry. Ultimately, it was all designed for killing people, wasn't it? Right. Um, and I wanted to start thinking about some other things instead. They're like command and control and about um, coordinating your forces and, and, and formations. 
Yeah. And look, there's plenty of examples throughout, not to get too deep into the history part, but like there's plenty of examples of armies that might have like an edge technologically. But the bottom line is, if you don't have an effective command structure, if you don't have an effective supply structure, I'm not going to say that it doesn't matter what people are armed with, but it's really about command ultimately, right? Command sure. and basically training. So, and you know, it's interesting too. I've had a lot of guests on and this, this does come up. I, it would seem that what you're describing is definitely um, more interjected in, in in war games now than they were back in the day. Because you're right. Mm -hmm. I think back in the day, it was a lot like very crunchy. That's a word I, I love to use. You know, sure. what are people armed with? How does that compare to who you're fighting? And a lot of times, like, I think that's where your modifiers come from, you know? Mm -hmm. So, um Okay, so where does where, where does the strength and honor sort of writing process begin? I mean, is this something that you undertook many many years ago, or? Um, yeah, sure. Um, I, I started off probably uh, about five or six years ago by um, trying to think about what a legion might look like in combat, and I was getting a little bit fed up of playing with twenty-eight mil figures, which I absolutely love. I should add, I'm not against big figures at all in the slightest. I think they're wonderful. I love painting them. Yeah. But the problem with them is, quite often, I found inside war games, people put down twenty, thirty, maybe even fifty or a hundred figures, and said that it was a legion. And actually, they never really managed to capture the, the the formations or anything close to the formations which legions actually would present inside battles. Instead, right. they put maybe 80 figures down and it looked like a century to me and, and uh, it looked beautiful and very nice this century, but not really a legion. So they never really captured these big formations that I wanted to depict for the, the big battles of the civil wars and uh, the Gallic wars and that kind of thing. So originally I started off just by scratch building a, a legion in two mil scale. Mm -hmm. um, two mil being the only scale I could think of in which you could actually try to depict all the different sort of ranks and, and that kind of thing inside the legion formation. And I played around originally with some MDF bases and some green stuff scored over the top and with a bit of painting and a bit of abstraction, it came out looking quite good. So in the <laughs> end, I decided, oh, I'll make a whole force of these. So in the end, I made a force of those and I thought, oh, we need some opponents now. So I made up some ghouls to go against them. And once I had them, I thought, oh, this is great. I've got these lovely, lovely bases, but what am I going to play with them? And uh, I started off playing with things like uh, DBA with them as like a big scale sure. DBA. And, you know, it played all right. It was a bit back and forth, but I wanted something just a little tiny bit smoother, maybe, mm -hmm. and a little bit, um, maybe a little bit grittier, maybe than uh, that in terms of the, the command structure and the sort of how, how, how orders might be relayed and that kind of thing. And I played around with lots and lots of different uh, ideas. And after a while, I shelved it and I put it away. And it didn't see the light of day for about two years at all. And I, I thought I'd come with other games and hobbies as you do and painting other armies. But then I came back to them then during the, the pandemic. I had a bit of time in my hands. I was at home and I was able to sit there and sort of develop them a bit more. And then I came up with a set of rules there and it's, it's influenced a little bit by DBA. Yeah, uh, a little bit by uh, to the strongest Simon yep. Miller's rules. Um, there's quite a bit of Blood Bowl inside there. If you play Blood Bowl, which I was playing quite a bit I with have. My kids inside <laughs> there, so there's there's obviously bits inside there which I've clearly sort of obviously uh, sort of copied some ideas from inside that, and also um, there's a few other mechanisms in there that I threw in myself as well that I sort of needed to be there really to capture the, the feeling of those battles there. Like, for example, the, the braking system with the, the setback cars and the disaster cars they're building up. Um, uh, so, um, yeah, it took influence from lots of different places. And then because we were under lockdown at the time in the UK, uh, we ended up uh, playtesting a lot of it. First of all, solo playtesting it. And then later on, um, we did a lot of games actually using Zoom and Google Meet. Mm -hmm. And I was really fortunate that I had a group of other gamers who were quite happy to go and play that with me. And actually online, it worked really, really well because it's a gridded system. There wasn't any arguing over how far it was to move right. or a charge or anything like that at all. I could say it was three squares away, you know, or two squares away or whatever. And, and it was easy, easy for people to, to look at, you know, on their screens, even if the quality of the, the camera wasn't so good on my mobile phone or something. Right. Um, and we were still able to play test very regularly. That's so we were play testing a couple of times uh, a week uh, doing that. And uh, then we rolled out to a wider play test group. And, um, and Richard then came on board and started working with me as well. Richard Clark from Two Fat Lardies. 
right. who's quite keen to sort of develop it further. And it's sort of over time developed into strength and honor. Yeah. So a um, couple of things like just about the game, right? Um, and maybe we can take our time here, like, you know, just sure. so people can kind of get a sense of starting with the grid system. Mm-hmm. I love the grid system. Good. So what um, what was the sort of driving force to using the grid as opposed to, um, you know, like other more standard war games where you're kind of measuring your distances? Sure. In fact, if you told me six or seven years ago you're going to make a game with a grid system inside, that I'd probably laughed at you and spat on the right, floor. Right, because not a, not a chance of that there. It's, it's um, heretical, right? Like yeah, on some oh, level. absolutely. And I wouldn't have played it seven or eight years ago because I was, um, you know, I was uh, – narrow-minded i suppose in my outlook and i think it was from coming playing things like to the strongest which is a great game uh, by the way king of parliament uh, i know you had martin goddard on a little while ago and, and it uh, he's actually quite local to me he's a, about two hours down the road he's um, a great dude yeah i, I really like Weymouth, talking to him. you know and uh, he came along and actually showed me square bashing at our club actually and we played it down there you know so smashing guy and uh obviously peter pig had been developing a square based grid rule for a while but what I like with the, the, the grid rules there is that the speed of movement inside it there, um, the absoluteness of something being in or out, there's no sort of ambiguity there. Um, I didn't want it to get down into the sort of the nitty gritty of if you are two mil out for one cohort and you know whatever. I wanted to think about the big picture of the battle line and what that looked like, and that's going to include a degree of abstraction really about where each sort of individual unit is within the, the wider brigaded formation that you're actually representing inside the game. Um, and also I wanted something that was largely a linear battle line. I was getting a bit fed up with uh, playing some games in which people were able to pick and choose where everything was going inside the battle line down to real sort of minute of detail. And really I wanted something that represented those big formations you see on the the battle plans you get in books very often, right. recreating what the Battle of Agnophosphorus or something looked like. Um, I want to be able to recreate something like that. Yeah. Um, so the grid mechanism helps to form that linear sort of warfare, which is largely the case on most of the big battles, which tended to be preset, pre-prepared engagements in which it took them, you know, two or three hours in the morning to traipse out of the camp and form battle lineup uh, before right. engaging at a sort of uh, mid-morning. And right. being hopefully all over by tea time. Most big battles inside the ancient world weren't sort of uh, sporadic engagements that sort of took place, um, you know, through a series of ambushes and that kind of thing. And while you can represent those through strength and on it, and they work very well uh, as well, I wanted that to be more the sort of the atypical battle rather than the, the big typical battles that I was trying to recreate. Right. What I really love too um, is how you handle like skirmishers. Oh, exactly. What I always find. Um, and I've, I've played a lot of games. I've always found that skirmishers and siloy, light troops, whatever you want to call them, they almost are so much more valuable in war games than they were in reality. Mm-hmm. You know, I love how, um, and again, so for our audience out there, because I know I have a habit of doing this, like I'm going to take my time here. So, <laughs> right, without, um, you know, ho- hopefully I'm not stealing Mark's thunder, but what I want you to picture. All right. And I just made my own units up recently, so it's very fresh in my mind. You know, imagine um, a gridded battlefield. Um, I use four inch squares, right? And imagine a rectangular unit in which you're getting a bird's eye view of what an actual Roman legion would look like, meaning you're looking at the individual cohorts down on on this base. You might be able to put your information of like what the unit does right on it. And it's on a big rectangle. So it's like you're basically moving that rectangle as if you were a general sort of pushing forward, not just like a few people, but we're talking about thousands of people, right? And what I love about a mechanism that Mark uses is if you want to kind of screen your uh, Roman legion with a group of, I guess in the Republic days, it would be the Velites or the Velite, and, you know, mm-hmm. later on other types of light troops, mm-hmm. it almost becomes like a little strip that you put in front of the unit and sure. it kind of provides certain buffs. I love that because again, mm-hmm. like, and I, I'm, I'm not trying to hate on other systems, but God, like, you know, the beginning of games and what Sile are able to do. And then it just takes so long for the main battle lines to kind of sure. get in to kind of, you know, actually meet up and fight. So mm-hmm. I do appreciate like kind of like mm-hmm. how you handle that. 
Yeah, no, that that wasn't my idea. Actually, that came from one of my playtests. That's okay. Right? It's still in the rules. <laughs> but we liked it so much, we kept it in there. It was a fantastic <laughs> idea. Yeah. So, so your light skirmishing infantry, for example, can either be deployed as a big sort of uh, a big cloud of a few thousand skirmishes all in one place, in which case they're they're very manoeuvrable and quite light, but without much hitting power and very vulnerable very quickly. Or you can use them to reinforce and support your lines of troops and have them in reserve or out in front. And they basically give you a brief combat bonus at the start of uh, combats. But then after a while, they they normally shrink away once the battle gets going. And it's normally not decided by those skirmishes out in front, but instead by the, the heavy infantry normally are, the, the, I would say, probably the queen of the battlefield in most of the battle circumstances. Um, and they're much punchier. So the idea is that the skirmishers, you dice to see how long they last for, and every turn they're engaged in combat, you've got the dice to step they stand. And most of the time, they tend to sort of disappear after the first turn or so of the combat and just giving you a brief bonus there. So, right. yeah, it's, it's it's quite a nice little mechanism. And as you say, hopefully that captures the role of light infantry in lots of the battles historically. Yep. Strengthening the line, but without necessarily um, being the decisive factor in most of the cases. Right. And what I appreciate the most about that answer, right, is, again, and I'm, I'm sitting doing this podcast in my library here. Look, if I pull Tacitus, if I pull Livy, if I pull Polybius, if I pull Plutarch, you know, anybody who sure. talks about warfare in, in that time period, right, in the Roman era, whether, whether you're talking about the Republic or beyond, like, that's what would happen. So it's not like, uh, you know you know, where you're sort of sitting down and, and reading one of these accounts and they're talking about all of these unbelievable wheels and maneuvers and the mm. lights going to the flank and then the lights going to the rear. It's like that. It just it, it's just not as prevalent, um, you know, in reality as it sometimes happens when we're playing with our little toy soldiers. Mm. So um, and again, like I can say that for with strength and honor, there's a lot of those mechanisms that are so like great at reflecting, you know, reality, you know, oh, great. Yeah. Good. So. All right, so here's here's another question I have for you, if, if you because this uh, to me is like by far the most unique element of the game, and I can only think of one other game that kind of has a mechanism like this. Could you talk a little bit? And I hope I don't mess mess up the lingo here. Um, but it's the setback cards. Sure. And sure. Correct me if I'm wrong. Is is it disaster cards? Disaster that, cards. Yeah, as well. yeah, that's right. Yeah. This is by far the cool. This is the thing that stood out to me more than anything else about the game. And Again, without steering, stealing Mark's thunder, this to me is what the kids, my students, are going to freaking oh, love. It's, it's, it's my favorite bit right, of the game as go well. Go for it. So talk about uh, it. I'm too excited so, uh, right now. <laughs> uh, one thing I noticed inside Ancient Battles is very, very rarely do you find that actually whole legions were destroyed inside fighting uh, or, or big groups of soldiers were completely annihilated. And when you're thinking about a battle between 10 soldiers fighting, well, all 10 of them might die fighting another 10 soldiers. But if you have 5,000 soldiers fighting, well, it's very, very, very unusual circumstances in which they get entirely annihilated. I mean, you could probably think of a handful of examples like that. Teutoburg Vold, for example, in 980, right. which the legions get massacred there. Um, but, I mean, apart from that, it's a pretty rare sign. So what I wanted to do was I wanted to try to capture that idea of units being weakened and being disorganised and them taking casualties and their morale slowly sapping away and reflect that in a system which didn't necessarily mean that figures were taken off the table immediately. And the original combat system emphasised a lot of pushing and shoving on both sides as both sides try to gain the ascendancy. And to begin with, you don't remove off your units, um, but instead you pick up setback cards as a unit is pushed back in combat. Or if they're uh, routed from combat, which is fairly unusual, but it does happen, or completely destroyed because, for example, they're uh, forced to retire into uh, a, a traffic jam by the soldiers. <laughs> they can't right. get away or into an impassable river or something like that. There, Or they're chased off the table. They collect disaster cards. You also get disaster cards of things like your baggage is looted or your generals die or things like that there. But most of the time, the disasters are for the things that tend to be the, the key moments in the battle, which tend to win or lose it. But I wanted to try and get across that sense of attrition, breaking down the army, casualties occurring. And if you can imagine a legion maybe taking two or 300 casualties, well, that's quite a lot of casualties, really, you know. But at the same time, it wouldn't necessarily stop them being still an effective fighting force if they've got maybe 4,800 paper strength at the beginning of the battle. 
Mm-hmm. So the setback cards that are picked up by each of the players as bad things happen to their force. But the, the tricky thing behind it is you don't actually know what's written on the setback cards at all. They're placed face down and you collect a pile of them as the battle goes on. And this pile grows and grows and grows. Or if you're a very good commander, it stays hopefully not very large. But <laughs> most of the time, invariably, you all pick them up regardless as the battle wears on and your troops do become more exhausted and fatigued and take casualties. And that's represented by these card piles piling up. During the game, then, you've got a sense of how badly your army is suffering and the cohesion of your army and how the, sort of the morale of it is holding together. But you never quite know for certain how bad that is until the cards are revealed during the game then one of the fun parts to it there and this is a slightly anachronistic more gamey part to it here possibly is that your opponent in their turn when they have the initiative can call out to you your little man in very bad cord latin which is mm-hmm. uh, homunculus s which is something we i think it's actually s this actually it's meant to be but i kept it with how i remembered it from latin at school right that's how bad my latin is <laughs> and the idea is call out to me your little man i thought was quite good fun um, and then the idea is then they've got to reveal their cards and those cards then um, have a, a figure on the other side of them. Setback cards have quite low figures on them, some between zero and three, and disaster cards have somewhere between two and seven on them there. You then add up the scores on those there and build it towards a sort of a, a final total. And if that final total is more than your army breakpoint, then you, your army is broken and you've lost the battle. But it's often a really exciting nail-biter as you get towards that final climax. And uh, you can have some quite extreme results suddenly coming out. And normally you get the same sounds from people watching it and playing it like you do when watching fireworks. or some right. oohs and ahs and gasps as the tension builds. Somehow, I don't quite understand how it's happened. I think this is more by luck than anything else here, really. Um, you, you very often get that sort of waiting to the very final card to see will they break, will they not break, which heightens the tensions and uh, it makes it a much more exciting game to play there. Yeah. Um, and it's it's a really nice mechanism. It's been a really popular one and, and certainly it shows. It's one thing that really gets the audience watching and staying to the end and sort of cheering and laughing or um, or booing and hissing. Yeah, again, or you know crying. I mean? you know, you know. So with kids, yeah. I can imagine that goes down. Oh, it's going to be great. Actually. Yeah, that'd yeah be I'm good. very looking forward to it. Um, <laughs> yeah, we had a good, we, we, we actually replayed uh, Canoy the other day over here mm-hmm. um, with with Richard Clark and uh, we, we pulled out all the cards there. And uh, on the dis- two disaster cards from one side, they both had the, the, the lowest possible things. Oh, they God, yeah, yeah. They're on twos. There's a, a, a one in 14 chance of you getting two twos in a row or something ridiculous like that there. Right. And of course, the other side then, their disaster card happened to be a seven. You know, so all these things here added up until literally the very final cards were turned and then in yeah. the end, one yeah. side break. But you know, it's funny. It's like, I know that earlier you were kind of saying this is a very gamey thing, right? Which, I mean, here's the thing. We're playing games. So like there has to be an element of that in there. But look, you know. But I don't pretend to be, you know, I'm I'm not an expert on ancient medieval and medieval warfare. But at the same time, how much did these generals really sort of know what was you, happening you, at any given time? Right? Well, you wouldn't know. Right. You, wouldn't you know, can sure. I right. mean, I think, you know, if you can imagine how far you can see on any one given day. Right. Absolutely. Um, a lot of these battle lines, I mean, a legion, we don't actually know how large the frontage of a legion would be, but I'd imagine that you know, they've had various estimates of somewhere between about 150 metres and about 450 metres for a legion right. frontage. So if you can imagine there are 10 legions lined up in a row on a battlefield somewhere, potentially, you know, you're looking at an area which is, you know, certainly over a mile in length, if not several miles in length. Unless you're elevated higher up than other people, you should right. be able to see that. Right. And I realise that in certain situations, you might be able to get a bit more of a view. I mean, there's an iconic scene in Spartacus, isn't there, where you see the Roman army march yep. the hill towards them and you get a sense of the scale of that there. Right. But I would have thought most generals in battle probably didn't get a sense of everything that's going on. Once all the dust starts you know, being created by the cavalry moving around and the right. infantry stomping their feet. And right. And look at it. Right. And look at Canae or Canae, depending on how you want to pronounce yeah. it. I mean, look, right. The Romans are sort of pushing forward. They think that they're winning. I would imagine like in game terms, it's almost like they're seeing the Carthaginian, you know, uh, deck pile up. 
um, in terms of like, you know, their setbacks and disasters and things like that. All, all they're seeing is the enemy kind of fall back and you just kind of keep going forward. So in a weird way, like I can see how your game mechanism makes sense there because maybe sure. you think that it's going yeah. well, but you know what? It might not be. But also you know? when, when units collapse as well, you don't get a lot of warning about that. There. Right. You know, yeah. You could see maybe a few people started to clear off of the back ranks. You know, right. They don't really want to be here. And and then suddenly I think you're going to see stuff breaking. Once yeah. one unit breaks then the next two or three, then next autumn, you know, look to their left and right and think, we don't really want to be here either. Right. And suddenly, but that herd mechanism, haven't you, in a battle, which um, is something which, uh, you know, is quite, um, uh, uh, I'm trying to think of the right words here. That, I, I kind of guess it's quite contagious, isn't it? You know, sure. it's just spread very quickly. Panic spreads very quickly because right. you don't see the picture of what's going on there. So I'm hoping that's it caps it quite well. I suppose the gamey part of it is your opponent calling out that, that point right. the game it is. And in that sense there, it's a little bit like playing pontoon, really. You know, you're yeah, yeah. a Mexican it's a fun game. Wait, yeah. wait, wait and see the, you know, the whites of their eyes and at which point there they're going to blink or whatever and you can right. call out on them. But, you know, I love that word, like the idea of being contagious. Like the battle that comes to mind immediately for me is like um, Hastings, right? Like where sure. everybody kind of thinks that William has sort of gone down like and has been a casualty and you sure. do see that kind of spreading throughout the ranks and yeah. what I, I think the story goes that he had to ride around without his helmet on to sure. make sure that people knew sure. he was alive you know so yeah I mean William of Poitiers says that he lost three horses under him at the Battle of Hastings yeah so, no, I believe that so, so you the know? suggestion being that he's in the front line he's absolutely mixing up there well, yeah, I mean, how else are you going to command during that time period? And again, these are things that we talk about in my class all the time, like the idea of like, how do you actually command an army? So it'll be fun like this this coming year, like talking about some of these particular battles, you know. So um, the other thing, just before we go on to another topic, you know, in, in talking about the rules, what I also really like about that whole system is um, when it comes to like, you know, your setbacks and disasters and things like that is if you guess wrong. So if you guess wrong jump in here if I'm incorrect about this. If I believe that we've done enough to win the game and we haven't and you don't get to the mm -hmm. break point, the opponents can throw away their highest card Absolutely. and kind of so keep it, going. It delays, right? it delays the battle's conclusion, basically. So, again, that's sort of another fun element to it there. So yeah. we're sort of waiting to think, you know, should I, should I go early? Do I call it early and hope for the best? Yeah. Or do I do I maintain the pressure on the enemy battle line? Right. And give them more setbacks. Um, you know, so I suppose that's a, the idea of committing the final reserves into the battle and and giving them one final push, really. Right. And um, I guess like you also lose your turn if you right. Yeah, because you, when, you right. get a reversal of fortune as well, so you, yeah. you lose the initiative, and that gives the opponent the chance to call you out as well. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, no, which, it's super you know, cool. Um, you know, there's a there's a bit of. Uh, yeah, there's some interesting tactics involved in that, that inside the game. The other thing yeah. we've also got in the game system to represent the command and control system and the way in which generals can influence the battle is we've got a command board in which you can allocate um, key key benefits at, at different points of the battle. I suppose it's the idea that before the battle, a general sat in a tent and said, right, our emphasis in this battle is going to be you know, attack and pressing forward or we're going to be doing this sort of more defensive strategy here. Right. And that allows you then to um, support key moments of the battle where you do get a little bit unlucky maybe occasionally and you have these bad reversals of fortune or something going horribly wrong. At the start of the battle, then the command and control is quite good because you can re-roll your errors. Right. And it seems okay. But as the battle goes on, the armies get more worn and you've spent more of your command points and you get less chance to influence things where it goes wrong. Right. So the idea being that that sort of maintained, confident, uh, fresh army is going to fight better than later on into the battle where as things stuff up, you really can't do much about it as the general. Yeah. Um, the general also has got a bonus that they can give to units, but it's only with the units that they're actually very close to. So again, the idea being that, you know, I can only shout for, you know, a hundred meters maybe, and people hear me in a battle probably much less than that. Right. And my personal influence can only be seen with the unit who I'm actually physically with rather than having these big sort of command radiuses that you get inside lots of other games. Um, I should add, that's probably still quite a big command radius in a two-mil game or a six-mil game. You know, it's actually covering quite a large area. But right. um, in terms of the whole proper battle line that would have actually been seen on an ancient battlefield, there's only so much you can influence by being there with your standards and being seen and blowing your, you know, your horns and beating your drums or whatever else you're doing to try right. to maintain the line. So when you play um, Strength and Honor, like you personally, like when you've run games or, you know, maybe people you know have run games, um, do you do anything different when you do it multiplayer 
Meaning like if you've got five players on one team and five players on the other, does each one of those people become almost like a sub-general? Do they have their own internal breakpoint or does the whole no, army still no, have no, a breakpoint? No, no, no. I do it as a whole army. Um, okay, I do gotcha. a whole army there for it. Um, on some of the really big ones I've done, like can I, um, I'll give several different general models and each one maybe have a, a general ship point to influence a certain point in the line. Oh, okay. And then they can then choose how they want to break down the line in terms of who's in charge of what. But they've still got the same um, decisions about which units to activate and the order and sequence of activation is quite important inside the game. Okay. Um, and I really enjoy that because what it means is then the generals will get together and they then have to have a bit of a discussion about what, what's important, where, where right. do we need to be pushing, what's our emphasis of the battle, right. you know, what are the priorities here, why are this lot getting left out on one limb over here on their own. And you right. can see how uh, you do get inertia on certain points in the battle line. Right. where troops don't necessarily always fight throughout the entire battle and commit themselves. It's not like a game of Warhammer of old, which everything moves forward. Oh, uh, sure, you, right, you right, know, right. Sure, so um, the idea being that, you know, you, well, you can command the whole battle line, and that's quite easy to do at the start of the game. Once the battle gets going, invariably, there's only going to be certain key crunch points in the battle line where the battle's going to be decided, really. Gotcha. Um, and you've got to try and work out where those those key points are that you want to be fighting in and the, the places where you maybe want to be refusing to fight or worst or, or not committing fully. Right. And you still use just the one command board for like multiplayer games. Yeah. Yeah. Got absolutely. it. Yeah. Got it. That's the way I play it. Got it. Got it. And I, I would imagine somewhere out there, you know, maybe because this is the beauty of wargaming. I mean, maybe somebody is also doing it their own way, you know, maybe have modified mm -hmm. it like to whatever their particular thesis. The reason yeah. I ask you, by the way, um, so, you know, as I've said a few times here, you know, I'm definitely going to run the game in my classroom. So the way that my units work, so just as an example, um, let's say I have 12 class periods to cover um, warfare in the Roman world. Usually what I do in every unit is I might have seven or eight classes where we're, you know, reading, where we're writing, um, you know, where they're really sort of you know, learning the sort of nuts and bolts, let's say, just about Roman warfare. But then what I do is I save three or four days within the unit to actually play a game, right? Oh. So Yeah, it's pretty cool. I'm very lucky. I, I always say, say I'm this. really jealous at this point here because well, I'm, you know what it I'm is? constrained it's just, by the national curriculum and everything over well, here. Well, that's uh, the thing. Like, yeah. I, I'm, you know, look, I'm sure your gig is great, <laughs> to, you know, but like for me, um, working in the independent school world, there is just so much more autonomy. And they... In these kinds of schools, they love stuff like that. They love sort of like quirky people like me that have some kind of outside the box interest that really kind of makes the school, uh, I don't know, a little bit maybe more unique. You know, I think mm -hmm. maybe that's right. the way to phrase it. But yeah, I am. I've said this many times. I'm very lucky, like the way that all this worked out, because what's really funny and you'll appreciate this, right? What's really funny and hopefully nobody from any of my institutions are listening to this, but like they look at it as like work, you know, like they'll yeah. send me to conventions to run games, to learn more about how to run a better game, you know, and then in the classroom, everybody's just having a blast, you know, mm. and but they they look at it, you know, more as like. Well, you know, they're learning, which they are, by the way. Like, of course, yeah. But absolutely. I guess you don't know what I mean. Like, they just look at it a little because no no one can see the smile on my face right now. But it's great. Like, I basically get to war game every unit and it's my job and they pay me for it, which is great, you know. But I'm being long winded. All right. So when I run this game, let me ask you, let's pretend for a second that um, in, in, in the magical world of, of travel, let's just say for whatever reason, we were able to bring you here and you were going to run a game and you've got, let's say, 10 students. Mm -hmm. Would there be things that you would do differently about running a game for a bunch of high school kids that are trying to understand Roman tactics and warfare a little bit better? It, how would you do that um, compared with, you know, maybe running the game for you know, like some experienced gamers at a club meeting or something. And I know I'm very much putting you on the spot here. No, no, it's fine. Um, one thing I would do probably is I'd probably start with something just very, very simple with a, a smaller battle just to try and get them a sense of how the basic rules work. And I'd keep it really, really simple. Uh, a, a really good example of that would be um, we've got a Bibract campaign based on um, one of the first battles inside uh, uh, Caesar's Gallic Wars. Mm -hmm. um, inside the first of uh, the ideas is three scenarios inside that there, which uh, you can download them actually on the Two Fat Lardies website. Okay. And um, the first scenario, the idea is that there's a, a Roman surprise attack 
on a column of um, uh, Helvetti, uh, one okay. of his troops migrating from Switzerland, basically, into Gaul. And it's with just a few units, and you get the hang of how units move and manoeuvre and things like that inside it there. Um, so I think I'd probably start off with something small there, building up to then a bigger battle, so it don't have a consequence to a bigger battle afterwards, maybe. Sure. And that way you can just grasp the, the hang of the rules there. In terms of complicated things, I think I would probably just go with a lot of the basic troop types rather than yeah. getting too worked up. I wouldn't get, on well, what it's quite sexy and exciting to think of, Parthian horse archers and the cataphracts and that kind of thing there. Yeah. I think I'd probably stick with a warband, light infantry, cavalry, yeah. and legions probably. Yep. Keep that simple there. Um, but you know what? Kids are smart. They are. They My kids are smart stuff, too. Uh, and they, they pick up stuff much faster than many adults actually. <laughs> they do. <laughs> and I find when I run games at shows, I don't often need to tweak it that much for the uh, the younger audience whatsoever because they tend to get into it and tend to know what they're talking about. What's funny is actually it's some of the older people who maybe are more used to a set of rules with an expectation that they want to be able to do certain things uh, or sort of fine-tune their uh, their movements and things who maybe find it slightly more uh, difficult to get their heads around the idea this is the whole Legion moving forward right. or something when they're used to you know, individually tactically moving at a sort of micro scale, lots of things there. So if I'm being honest with you, I wouldn't, I wouldn't change it too much there. I yeah. think it's something that you could probably pick up and play relatively intuitively. Yeah. Um, and you know, I don't know how old your students are. What's the age They're high school kids. Yeah. So these are like kids that are in 11, basically 11th and 12th grade here. So Okay. All right. So 15, 16 year olds. Oh, yeah. Like, and sometimes oh, even gosh. older too. You, yeah. you, don't, you, don't, you don't need to tweak it that much at all. Yeah. And in which case, I think I would stick as is. They'll grasp it better than most adults. I yeah. Think, probably. Yeah, it should be fun. I think my one of my thoughts was um, it might be fun to do, you know, a little Caesar versus Pompey and then maybe um, maybe even show. I love showing clips like film clips and stuff, because sometimes like when it comes to the military, it it can be so hard to understand some of these concepts and to get a visual without having the visuals. If you're just reading a text, it can be a little bit hard for them, you know, so there's Mm -hmm. so many good um, like even you were mentioning Spartacus before. Now, granted, you know, maybe not the most historically accurate film, but then Mm. again, like there are some, there are some elements of what those troops look like and how they moved and stuff. That's, you know, would be, would give the students a nice visual, you know, but um, yeah. So look, I mean, not to say that I want to wrap up yet, but we are kind of, uh, uh, you know, a bit a bit short on time here. The bottom line is I love your system. I mean, it's really great. And I would be curious to know, like, what's been the reaction, you know? Um, yeah, it's, it's you been know, from really the community. Well um, yeah. Been really fortunate there. Uh, a lot of people have come along and enjoyed it. Um, a few people have been skeptical about the scale to it. And I keep uh, posting up what I describe as, I think, really beautiful sort of... Uh, Battle scenes there, which look, you know, with a topography and things like that. And there's always a few people who rather cynically say, oh, my eyes, I can't possibly see the individual soldiers. Well, you know, you're not meant to. Right. You, you see the formations. Can you see the checkerboard formation of those cohorts, for example? Can you see the triple axes, the three lines of Roman legionaries? Can you see the big warband mob of infantry there? Right. You know, much, it's a much more disorganized, but it's a big, close ordered body of troops. Right. And uh, so for them, you know, the aesthetic of it is something that was maybe had a little bit of a pushback on the two mil stuff. But of course, the game isn't just a two mil game, it could be played in six mil. 10 yeah. mil, 15 mil, 28, whatever you fancy really for it. They just happen to like the smaller scales because right. they capture it maybe a little bit better. Yeah, for um, sure. So that's been the main pushback on it there from people. Uh, right. But in terms of the rules and uh, the mechanisms, people have really enjoyed it. The card mechanism has gone down particularly well and people yeah. really love that there. Uh, I think it's hopefully uh, got a few doubters about grid mechanisms, playing grid games and sort of opening their eyes a little bit. I think there's still a little bit of conservatism towards the yeah. idea of playing the grid system. Yeah. Uh, uh, and I, I think that we're winning those people there over. It's just taking a little bit of time there for that at the moment. Yeah. You know what um, I sometimes say to people about the grid the grid system? Because, again, like, I feel like I've had this same conversation multiple times like the last use because, look, you know, one of the other games I'll probably use in my own classroom is I basically took um, Hail Caesar from Warlord games and sure. converted it to a grid system where you can yeah. kind of, you know, play the same game. Because, again, for students – it just moves things along. They like grids more. They like playing on a grid. And again, like what I often say is I think that 
for a lot of war gamers, the second that they see a grid, they think a board game. So it's like, oh, I'm not playing a war game anymore. I'm playing mm-hmm. a board game. That's the first thing. And the second thing is, I think that, and I think it's completely, you know, crazy, but I think that some people feel like the grid constrains them and it doesn't enable them to make the the kinds of maneuvers that they might be used to in other systems. But to me, it's like, you're going to end up in the same place. There's only so many places you can go sure. on the, on, you know sure. what I mean? Yeah. So I, you know, I think that, I think once people kind of get past some of those mm. little biases, like I think they'll see like the benefits of that grid. It just makes everything so much faster, you know? Sure. Um, so, so it's a case of challenging some of those maybe um, misconceptions, maybe yeah. also myths about both the scale and the grid. So yeah. I, I want people to uh, try and get past, open their minds a little bit and give it a go. They yeah. don't like it. Well, fair enough. They can say what a waste of time that was. But I mean, I run lots of games in the UK now at shows. Right. Um, and I know I've got people playing them at Historicon, for example. There was a great oh, definitely, yeah, yeah. Maxis I was there over there, yeah, uh, in CanCon inside uh, Australia. They were playing um, Bibract over there. Yeah, I know inside Italy, inside the Milan Con. There, they were they were playing Strength and Honor as well. And up in Scotland, maybe a bit close to home, up in Claymore, I know they've been doing Strength and Honor. Mons Graupius up there as well. So we've got a lot of people playing it in different locations in Canada as well, at like Hot Lead. I know there was a game there as well. So mm-hmm. I know it's sort of rolling out there. People are starting to see it and sort of hopefully think again a little bit about it and, and challenge those ideas. And I'm hoping you can have a great time playing it. Yeah, yeah, for sure. It's sort of something that. Um, I think is a good game. I wouldn't have produced it if I didn't think it was good. It would have just become, uh, you know, another idea and a dusty piece of paper that stayed on the <laughs> shelf for a bit longer. But right, um, yeah, I'm really, I'm, I'm quite proud of it at the moment. It's, it's been so good. moving forward. Um, are you doing anything with like, for example, maybe you know, putting out scenario books or uh, like other sort of versions of the game, maybe for other time periods, sure. like within the ancient world? So that is something that yeah, you're thinking sure. about. I mean, there's a few things, different things that are happening with it. Um, uh, we've just brought out uh, an article which is going to Slingshot magazine, which is okay. uh, Society of Ancients, um, uh, all about Greek warfare. So that's sort of showing uh, for the second month in the year, we did a scenario for that and some earlier Greek things for it. And we're hoping to roll that out again into a large magazine there as well. I write quite a lot for War Games, so I'll just trashy magazine. So I tend to produce a scenario every every other edition, something like that there to go right. inside it. So I hopefully we're building up. So I've done some of the battles of Marius inside it there. Some oh, cool. The yeah. Second, second Servile War. So that's the one in, or one of the ones in Sicily before Spartacus. Right. Uh, at the moment, um, I'm working on doing some Sarmatians and um, later Roman things there. So I'm, mm-hmm. I've just been making a frozen Danube table to take along to shows. There yeah, I've seen it. There, which um, it's quite exciting. So that'll be a, a Selvig show this year in October at, right. uh, in London. Um, but in terms of other supplement stuff, currently I, I've written out and prepared Punic Wars uh and sort of earlier Roman, Polybian Roman uh, armies, and the legions are not going to fight slightly differently to the, the right. sort of more, I'm going to call them Marian, yeah. although the term is now slightly um, anachronistic, possibly, if, you, if, you, if you're if you a regular academic reader of the latest yep. of ideas on how the legions fall, but certainly from sort of Marius onwards, is, and the principle is the time period the rules normally cover, so we're going back a little bit earlier to the sort of uh, the manipulative system, yeah, um, with the the triari and the principes and the um, Castati and the Belites uh, fighting. So it's going to be wars against uh, Pyrrhus and that kind of thing there. But yeah. also, I've gone back to uh, writing scenarios for um, the rise of Macedon as well and the successors. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's all kinds of, of uh, just just new army lists and scenarios and things. Yeah. That's that. a lot. Yeah, that's that's yeah. There's a, a lot about there. So that's that's. So I've got a supplement one on the way. The main problem is that Two Fat Lardies has got a, a list of things that they need to finish and produce. Yeah, um, they're constantly being asked all the time. Oh, when's this one coming out? And things yeah. like that. There, and mine's basically ready to go. But at the moment, they've got a few other things in the pipeline they've yeah. got to produce out first. They're quite so unfortunately, It's going to be a little bit of a while before we see that, but hopefully it'll see the light of day at some point there. In yeah. the meantime, I might put out a few uh, makeshift lists and that kind of thing so that people can stay happy with it. Yeah. Um, we've got some campaign rules on the go. So I've been working on campaign rules and uh, doing uh, a big campaign map for Judea during the Judean campaigns. So that's been quite good fun. And I'm working a Britannia campaign for that as well. 
Mm-hmm. I've got some naval rules as well. Good God. Uh, which is going to go in with a campaign system. So I'm a big fan of Roman naval battles. Yeah, me too. They're, they're so, really um, fun. Yeah. So I've got, uh, at some point, I'm going to roll out an Actium. I've got cool. the ships for it all, and a now Locus game as well. So I'm a big fan of Sextus Pompeius. Using and, the same uh, rules, though? Like the same uh, Yeah, same, same sort of mechanism. Same sort of me- so a lot of it you'll feel familiar with. In fact, the campaign rules and the night rules. But they're going to be a long way down the pipeline. Yeah, but you know what, though? That's an even bigger niche that needs to be filled. I can't tell you how many conversations I've had with people where talking about ancient naval wargaming and the fact that there's not really a great rule set out there that does anything beyond like having one or two ships so that oh, that, that would be very uh, fun yeah well i wrote actually you mentioned tail caesar i wrote a set of rules in uh war game sold strategy mm-hmm. uh if he's 66 this is going back now about okay. seven or eight years which are called hail agrippa okay which, I think uh, whereas, seen that. which was sort of a variant on playing uh hail caesar but Basically, uh, capturing how the smaller ships were meant to have fought in a similar way to cavalry, yeah, darting yeah. in and out, using the mobility to um, uh, disengage quickly and disable ships by uh, ramming through their oars and rudders and that kind of thing. Whereas yeah. the heavier ships relied on boarding actions with, uh, you know, lots of marines or legionaries on board. They're much more similar to heavy infantry. It actually plays rather nicely. It's a bit weird, yeah. there, but it's with a few small tweaks that it captures it quite well. So, yeah, ancient naval battles are something I'd love to do a bit more. I don't think there's a huge market out there for it, but you're yeah. right. At the moment, there's too many rule sets that focus on will this one ship ram the other ship? And actually, right. you, when you're talking now, Locus, with 300 aside or something, yeah. uh, they agreed to come up with. Um, Actium's even larger than that. Yeah. 360 versus about 240 ships. Yeah. Um, so if you want to capture those games there, you've got to have things which are representing squadrons of ships rather than just individual ships and what they're maneuvering, what they're doing. Gotcha. Yeah. So I'm hoping at some stage you'll see the light of day, or if not, I'm sure I'll play them at some shows and put them in the bin and realize there's no money to be made out of them. Not that I'm doing it for the money anyway. Yeah, well, none of us do, right? <laughs> yeah, I won't be bathing in champagne with these rules. Don't worry about <laughs> gotcha. that, you know. But uh, no, the gotcha. joke I always have is I'll be bathing in baked beans by the end of it all, you know. So. Yeah. <laughs> gotcha. Well, look, this has been great. I mean, it's been so nice to chat with you, and I'm, I'm, because I know again, like without revo- revealing too much about your personal life, like I know that you're going to be doing a bit of traveling. So it was really nice that you were able to kind of come in and be able to do this before, you know, oh, it's heading a off. Pleasure. Yeah, it's yeah, very cool. So Thank let you. me ask you really quick. So just to kind of wrap up, um, if somebody wanted to reach out to you, talk about the game or to get a little bit more information about it or wants to buy it, like how might somebody uh, get in touch or how might somebody find you in not a creepy way on the Internet? Oh, well, yeah, that's yeah. the question. The key that. is to not yeah. the creepy uh, yeah, Not yeah. in the creepy way. Uh, yeah, so uh, we've got a, a Facebook website uh, page, which is called uh, the Official Strength and Honor uh, page or something like that, if you search the Official Strength and Honor. And we've got over 2,000 members on that there. So um, my sort of on-running joke on that is then we're on to our fifth cohort at the moment of, uh, of recruits into that. And there's a lot of discussion on there, a lot of people sharing ideas about the rules and how they work and giving ideas for scenarios and painting models and that kind of thing for it. Um, So please come on and join that and see if that captures your interest at all. Uh, You can follow me on Twitter, and I'm um, MarkBackhouse29 on Twitter. Um, So uh, by all means, or or X as it's now called. Sorry, I'm so outdated, (laughs) aren't I? It will still be Twitter to me for some time to come. Yeah. Uh, and I tend to post up quite a lot of things I'm doing on there. Um, you can uh, read a lot of my articles and a lot of scenarios inside WSS website, but probably most importantly, if you want to get hold of the rules, if you go onto the Two Fat Lardies website, you can purchase the rules from on there. Or if you're inside Europe, you can purchase them from the Right website because uh, they do the distribution for Two Fat Lardies stuff inside Europe. Um and um, what else do you need to? I think that's probably it for the. No, I think that's the, good. The, the no, that's great. There isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, when do you start teaching again? Or did you? Is your school yeah, year I'm back started? First of September. So, oh, me too. Um, so yeah, just in time for for Actium Day on the second. Yeah. Well, we'll rejoice at the the, the saving of the Republic by Marcus Agrippa. Marvelous. Gotcha. So you're not you you couldn't, for example, put together some kind of gamified lesson on something at, oh, at your school. I, I, I do one or two small things there. Yeah, this yeah. is going to pan out your 
podcast a little bit longer just for everybody's packing up to go home. But yeah, uh, yeah, I've done a couple in the classroom. I do um I do a battle of the Psalms reenactment. Cool. Which um involves people taking on roles of different soldiers and thinking yeah. about what it's like and so, but it's it's not really from a, a general's perspective, but very much yeah. from an individual experience of the soldiers involved sure. in the there. Sure. Um and there's a number of other sort of uh, sort of war game lights at games. I did okay. we do a sort of a role play game which they've got to try and capture a besieged castle and, and right. in there. So look, unless you absolutely despised doing this, which I don't think you did. All right. So next time you come on, maybe we'll just focus on the classroom. We'll talk a little bit about our experiences teaching. We, we, we can do, yeah. But yeah, very cool. Well look, Mark, um like I said, I genuinely mean this. It was I really appreciate you coming on. I'm a huge fan of the game. I just based everything up downstairs. So uh, in the old uh, gaming den, so I'll definitely be in touch about um, how it sure. went, and yeah, no, you know, no, maybe they, even uh, yeah, maybe if, even if it's cool with my school, maybe when I actually run the game, um, I'll take some photos and I'll I'll send them to you if you oh, want to use I'd them. I love for, that. Yeah, for whatever. yeah. Well, if you could post them up on the Facebook page or on the Instagram. Yeah. Well, I should have added it on Instagram, of course, because that's where you met me. That is, yeah. Oh, I, I'm so sorry. I just, I'm on Instagram no, no, no. as well. Oh gosh, yeah. <laughs> They'll Awful. find that's, you. That's just the strength on our Instagram page, I think, for that one. Indeed. All right, Mark, this was great. Thank you so very much for coming on. I really appreciate it. It's an absolute pleasure, Jared. Thanks so much. Awesome. All right. And for all the gaming. Indeed. And for all our listeners out there, I hope you enjoyed. And like I said, um, it's a really cool game. So I hope you get a chance to give it a give it a try at a convention or pick up the rules like uh, Mark was sort of describing. So I'll see you all later. Thank you so much for listening to today's 20-sided gamified podcast i hope you got as much out of the conversation as i did if you're interested in learning more about the organizations i work with please visit www.nextgengaming.org and www.nasaga.org my instagram handle is hmgs underscore nextgen underscore inc until next time Be well, get some gaming in, and roll some 20s. Thank you so much.